0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Lawrence J. Fox and Susan R. Martin, the authors of Fair Fight, Legal Ethics for Litigators. Larry and Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Nice to be here. So one of the things I find fascinating about your story is this is the seventh book you've worked on together. But how did this partnership start? Susan, how did you and Larry meet? Well, we met in 1987 as advisors to the
1: restatement of the law-governing lawyers. As Larry likes to say, this is an acquired taste. You sit in a windowless conference room for three days in a row arguing about words in a restatement based on case law. And we did that for 13 years. That was followed (laughs) by the ABA... Ethics 2000 project, which updated the model rules of professional conduct. And uh, that was about a five year project. And at that point, we had uh, formed a real friendship and lots of good humor to get us through all of these sessions. And as a result, we started writing books together.
2: Among others that Susan brought to the table was a good sense of humor, which is really, if you start taking yourself seriously on this stuff, you could. Probably- not help yourself and you're not going to help your clients either so but everything moves glacially in our world and there's been dramatic changes from when we started all of this and it's funny to think about the seven projects each taking us through another era of our profession
0: so larry you mentioned that this seems like a new era in the profession What were some of the major changes that you felt required this new book? And it's got an interesting structure to it. So I'd love you to talk about why you decided to write the book in this Q&A style.
2: It all comes back to the beginning. I um, bought for the first time a full semester at Cornell Law School, and when I came back, Susan asked me what I had done and she said, well, how did you do your course? And I said, well, I couldn't stand the case book that the, one of the uh, teachers at Cornell had written. So I started writing my own little problems out on scraps of paper. <laughs> and that's what I used was a whole series of hypotheticals. And this goes back now, 25 years, I guess. Susan, asked for them and they were delivered to her in probably 50 little sheets of paper some written on the side of envelopes and uh, she said we could make a case book out of this i had no idea what it was involved she of course did but she turned out to be right we were able to make a case book out of it we found a publisher and it's still being used and it's in its fourth edition i'm proud to say and if it weren't for Susan, we would never have started down this road. So I'll take her now, as I have many times before.
1: Larry has also written short stories before, short stories about lawyers in practice struggling with ethical issues. And these have been published by the American Bar Association in, in a couple of volumes. And so those short stories made their way into uh, our casebook. Some of them did. And so this story methodology, this hypothetical, this Q&A methodology sort of evolved out of that. So Larry, the practitioner, uh, uses that to tell stories about lawyers in practice. And on the academic side, I annotate the stories with citations to relevant authority and little tiny essays about the law that we're discussing in the background.
2: And she... finds the big mistakes I've made (laughs) along the way. I have confidence in her that we're not going to go to press with something that won't pass muster, but sometimes my views depart from others.
0: (laughs) So we've described the style of the book, but I think that the best way for my listeners to really understand what we're talking about is to hear a little bit. Susan, I think that you said you and Larry had picked out a portion of the book to read aloud to give my listeners an idea of what Fair Fight reads like. Uh, Each of these Q and A's has
1: a title and this one is called The Conciliatory Supervisor. And the subtitle is Trouble Everywhere.
2: I hope this would never happen.
1: Lawyers get to say something like that all the time.
2: Fortunately, not for this reason. I'm a senior associate, in the window, as they say. The partners are now asking me on a regular basis, what am I doing to bring in new business?
1: We all know about those campaigns, a brave new world.
2: Not why I went to law school. Anyway, you need to know what's on the line. We have this huge case, bet the company, lots of discovery. I'm the senior associate. It's a doable hour giving tree. No problem reaching my quota this year. Sounds problem free. Oh, it would be until I was reviewing the bills going out last month. My hours, over 230 were billed at the partner's rate, 750 instead of 400. Then I looked back and I saw the same as far back as April 1st. I contacted the partner, went to see him. And he told me he would look into it. He mumbled the words. Coding errors, When I did not hear anything more from him for a week, I dropped by and inquired again. His answer, it was a mix up, something about the pressure around you. He's on a medication for his depression.
1: And the bills, are they corrected?
2: You know, I don't know.
1: Well, we're afraid that your responsibilities have not ended. While Model Rule 5.2 permits you to accept a supervisory lawyer's resolution of an arguable question, here there is theft. And you do not know whether that theft or over-billing has been resolved. You also do not know if the partners fit to be practicing law. The only good news is that you don't have to resolve these problems by yourself. You are a lawyer at a large firm. You must run both issues, possible billing fraud and the partner's health problems to ground, but only to the extent of enlisting the other partners in the firm to address these matters. Not a pleasant assignment, but even associates are lawyers, and all lawyers must look out for their clients and their colleagues. The rules require it, and further action on your part will only be required if your discreet referral does not result in appropriate action
2: but the case is going to trial
1: in a month. Even that exigency cannot excuse a failure to act now. The trial itself could be in jeopardy.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for reading that. One of the things that I really thought was important about the example you just pulled out is oftentimes lawyers aren't just facing one ethical conundrum they can come in bunches. So you're not just worried about this billing thing, you're also worried about your supervisor's current mental health and and how he's doing. So can you talk a little bit about the way you wanted to approach your readers with these complex problems? Susan?
1: Well, this excerpt that we just read is a good example of this. We drew this hypothetical from an ethics opinion in the Connecticut bar, and we footnoted that so that you would see it. In fact, that ethics opinion says that this is billing fraud if it happened, and that it must be uh, reported. It's very serious misconduct. We also cited, we're happy to say, an ABA ethics opinion, which talks about lawyers with disabilities or mental impairments. And that may or may not be the case here, but it talks about partners who have direct supervisory authority and their their responsibility to respond. When you put this together, if you were the senior associate facing this problem, you would have good authority to cite to the people you report to about their obligations as well as your own. So the point of all this is that we hope that the footnotes give you further support for what needs to be done, and we hope that the story engages you in an interesting ethics issue.
2: I think what we want to accomplish here, or one of the things we want to accomplish here, was to remind lawyers there's a person or persons behind all of these names And when you read just a hypothetical and it's A versus B, you're nowhere in a way. You want to be able to get as far, you know, we don't want to just have people break reading short stories for the purpose. But if you start putting enough description in, you start realizing we're talking about real people having to do really difficult things. And it's easy enough to say to uh, students or fellow lawyers, you know, we've got an obligation to do this, but it's quite another when you put the reader in the position of knowing of this piece of information and having to deal with it, which means having uncomfortable conversations with superior lawyers. And by the way, of course, along the way, we are picking up a couple of rules in almost each of these. They're not naked or, or one problem. We have multiple problems because that's so often the case that you start off with one set of problems and before you know it, you're, you're, you've got many more to deal with. But there was some idea around the world of lawyering back when we were talking about these issues, that associates weren't real lawyers, that associates uh, didn't really have responsibility. And that's clearly not the case. And we changed the rule to read that way. And we changed, we wrote the story to put it in the casebook so that people would understand their real obligation.
0: And I think it's important to talk to listeners about the way Fair Fight is structured and the three different ways they can read the book because there are these engaging stories, but this isn't a meandering journey where you would need to read all 500 pages necessarily (laughs) if you had a specific area that you were concerned about. What you did in structuring the book is take readers on a journey from the very beginning of any sort of client contact till the the end. And you end with judicial obligations. And there's very clear index and uh, ability to, to look things up. So Susan, could you talk a little bit about uh, the three ways you thought of readers interacting with the book? We talked about this in the preface to the book,
1: It might be an introduction if you didn't have a a decent ethics course in law school or certainly a refresher that takes you through, as you said, representing clients zealously within the bounds of the law or limits of the law. That's our overall concept in the book. And so you could read it through if if you felt like it. But as you just mentioned, Lee, it's also a reference guide. I would recommend just reading the first chapter to get a sense of the layout of the book. But the table of contents and the index help you get to a place where you can find a story or a case site or a model rule that might be relevant to your personal issue. And then finally, we hope that some people will read this book just because it's a series of engaging stories. And they're intended to engage you in ethical issues. That's why we've used hypotheticals throughout our teaching. We find that that makes it interesting and relevant. And as Larry said, real people are involved. And that's the Q&A sections.
0: Larry, something I was struck by, and as I was slipping through, is a lot of these ethics questions have arisen because of new technology. And people need this advice, particularly if they're not coming straight from law school now on if my law firm's PR person is encouraging me to go on LinkedIn, how should I act on LinkedIn? What's okay for me to do or say, or who should I friend? So can you talk about the way you and Susan went about gathering examples to be helpful to people who may be a little uncertain with new technology and ethics rules?
2: Well, this was an easy one because I did re- could do no research in my own brain or on my own b- library. <laughs> uh, so it required me at a superannuated age to say you have to understand, lively, what is important here now, even though it's stuff that you're just learning in your late years of teaching, uh, of, of practicing. And I wanted to make sure that we got some of that in there so at least there was a red flag flying that said, lawyer, even though matter how senior you are and how much you want to distance yourself from the new technology, you can't because, in fact, the new technology has completely dominated their profession. It's changed everybody's way of doing business, but it certainly has not missed changing things for lawyers as well. And so we were very much tuned to that. And I know there's a good resistance among my generation to all this stuff. And so I was trying to make sure that we satisfied it. We thought, well, this story idea or the plot idea might help us. I mean, there's a, there's a wall there and I'm trying to take, take it down. And I'm the best example of somebody sort of traps on the wrong side of the wall.
0: Well, and you don't, just have your own personal experience to draw upon. You actually do work defending attorneys dealing with ethical issues. Is that right?
2: I do. My hobby became my practice. <laughs> I was a security solicitor when all this started. And I do testify as an expert and I'm making myself available to law firms who need advice. Sometimes it's just good to get an outsider's opinion. Uh, it doesn't bring the personality problems to the table that internal law firm discussions all, often generate. So it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to do it this way.
1: I also think that that we have benefited over especially the last 10 to 20 years from listening to our students. They know technology. They've taught us so much. Larry and I have also worked in a clinic at Yale with students where we've been fortunate to benefit from their insights. And I must say now that individual bar associations and the American Bar Association are responding to technology with lots of ethics opinions. And so that's another source of insight.
0: And Susan, you brought up the next generation of attorneys. And I do think that they're going to be facing some environment issues that we can't even fathom in this moment, as we're all dealing with the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic, all of us have made a lot of changes, and the legal profession is, is undergoing a lot of changes as well. So in addition to reaching out to more senior attorneys and helping them understand some of this new technology, what are some of the things you stress with your students that they need to be aware of? and looking out for as they begin their practices? What are some of those pitfalls you wanna warn the young students about?
1: You know, we both approach this from the viewpoint of what law informed the restatement and the model rules. And the first ethical code of the American Bar Association now was over a hundred years old. So we've thought about what did those lawyers a hundred years ago look at? They looked at some kind of law to for example articulate that there was an obligation of confidentiality to clients and so in that way we get to the found the legal and actually moral foundation of these rules and that foundation is for the most part fiduciary duty lawyers are fiduciaries to clients and that has helped us develop over time what we call the six C's or six client obligations. And the first, uh, about a little over half of the book is dedicated to fleshing that out. Number one, and not always obvious, is that clients must be clearly identified. There is the potential in the law governing lawyers to have an accidental client, someone you didn't want to or expect to represent. And we have uh, several chapters on examples of that. Once you have identified your client, you obviously owe your client competence. And that, of course, is the professional standard of care. And that, of course, is borrowed in part from tort law. And then we get deep into fiduciary duty. Lawyers have to recognize that clients control the goals of the representation. It is their money, their life, their interests at stake. Secondly, lawyers have an affirmative obligation to communicate with clients. We cannot remain mute. We must update them. We must answer their questions. And whenever informed consent is required, we must ask for it affirmatively, not wait for them to ask us. The last two are pretty obvious to practicing lawyers. One is confidentiality. And here we do, we take some time to distinguish between the fiduciary or ethical obligation and the evidentiary obligation of the attorney-client privilege. We found that both lawyers and law students want to talk about privilege when they think about confidentiality. And that's a piece of it, but just a small piece of the broader obligation in Model Rule 1.6, which requires lawyers to keep confidential any information relating to the representation, regardless of its source. And finally, the final C is obviously Conflict of Interest Resolution, which requires first recognizing the conflict and then secondly, in some way, resolving it, either by not representing one or more parties or by obtaining a true informed consent.
2: If you follow the six C's, you will get in a lot less trouble than otherwise. But in fact, as with the other topics here, the little stories of the lawyer who you know, so wants to take on a new matter, but has an impediment, you think about, you know, sort of how human beings, because lawyers sometimes are human beings, (laughs) react to the, you know, we are, have all these obligations. We celebrate the obligations. We sell our services based on the obligations, but then we have to run into fulfilling the obligations. And there's always going to be a tension. We understand that. And that's, the hope hope is that you'll identify the problem. The lawyer will identify the problem early on and address it immediately and move on. That's the goal, uh, and that's why reading some of these little essays, short stories, may p- remind people. And and they're so anxious to pursue the whatever the matter is, particularly litigators, uh, that all along the way they have to be asking themselves. Do I have one of the six C obligations at this juncture in this case?
1: And then followed by that, and this is part of the section we just read from, part four of the book is entitled The Limits of the Law. In other words, lawyers have fiduciary obligations to clients But they also have to, on occasion, say no. So the obvious would be lawyers can't commit crimes or frauds for clients. And some of the other obligations that lawyers, particularly litigators, have that actually come from other sets of rules are read into the rules of professional conduct. Here, I think of procedural rules, such as the rules of civil procedure and also on occasion evidentiary rules like the attorney client privilege or work product doctrine which if violated could result in sanctions to a
0: lawyer so one of the other things that i feel like we really should address during this time when the pandemic is happening attorneys are being called upon to work in ways that maybe they never have before maybe the way that they have communicated with clients has now changed, their workspace environment, the way that they're trying to solicit business. What are some of the major areas of concern that you think lawyers should be aware of when it comes to practicing during this pandemic? Susan, I'll start with you. Well, I'll mention three. We talked about the fiduciary obligation
1: of confidentiality you know, there have been a number of ethics opinions who which talk about whether you need encrypted email or not and other forms of communication. And of course, if you're at home, you have to be in a private space where others in your family don't hear the, the confidential communication you are having with your client online. Secondly, a conflict of interest resolution. I think it's very interesting that... It, you would, when you're away from your office, perhaps think, oh, well, I remember all the clients I've ever represented, so I'll just remember if I can take on a new client or not. But your memory is never infallible, and that's why we have conflict of interest search systems. Every law firm has them. And even if you aren't there with the physical files, you have to have some way of accessing online that list of clients of the firm at the point you want to take on a new client. And finally, I would say that in terms of communication, the fact that you can't meet with the client face-to-face doesn't mean you can't Zoom with the client or speak to the client on the phone, obviously, and you have affirmative obligations of of communication whether or not you're in person.
0: Larry, how about you? What What do you think people should be paying attention to as they change their work habits during the pandemic?
2: I think so much of what we do, particularly on the confidentiality and loyalty sides of this, is so critical that we have to maintain them as diligently as we can, because in fact, that's the only way we're going to be able to be effective. Our clients are not going to be acting as responsibly as they should, nor are our colleagues. I feel like this pressure that individual lawyers are experiencing right now is distorting in some ways the services we're delivering. And it's because we're, people are not together. We don't get chances to have the luxury of time that we sometimes had when we all had offices and conference rooms and nobody was worried about anybody being together. If anything, we've got to be more diligent. We can't say that there's some exception for any of the rules because of the pandemic or any other serious dislocation factor. And when lawyers are used to being called in at the last minute, being called in at midnight, uh, being called in with two days to work and get something extraordinary done. We're just gonna have to keep enhancing our stock and trade so that we deliver the best services we can. But it's no no time to let your warning flags be taken in. Look up at them and decide how to act with them.
0: And Larry, maybe this is a good follow-up question to what you just said. Uh, one of the things I found striking or, or interesting when I when I looked at the book was you stressing the idea not just about what lawyers can do, but also what you must say no to, and when you have to say no to your clients. Could you talk a little bit about that and why that is such an important theme that you guys wanted to stress in Fair Fight?
2: Well, again, it comes to the same issue, which is we are, in some ways, the servants of our clients. But in other ways, we do have to be a little bit of the guardian angels for our clients. Because we have the best opportunity, and the rules are written that way. They start off with the best opportunity to stop bad things from happening and to remonstrate with our clients and judges and whatever to persuade them to go the way we think would be in their best interest and certainly to avoid criminal conduct or fraudulent conduct or any other misconduct that would undermine the lawyer-client relationship or fail interfere with our ability to deliver the services that we need. It's a tall order, but we don't often step back and look at ourselves and think of ourselves as the profession that can help society so much just in the way we give advice and in the way we deal with trying to be as persuasive as we can to courts, to the other side. But most important, we want to be persuasive to our clients. We bring the tools, we bring the experience, we understand what goes on in these beautiful columned courthouses. Uh, we got to bring the the benefits of all that to our clients. And that's what this, the hope is that we're not goody two-shoes, but that we can play an important (laughs) role in society that way.
1: I think a good example um, of this concept of the limits of the law, Larry's mentioned several, which occur because of outside law, like rules of professional conduct and rules of civil procedure and the law of crime and the law of fraud. One rule of professional conduct is Rule 4.2, which prevents lawyers or prohibits lawyers from having contact with represented persons. Uh, We often think about contact as personal contact. But in fact, a number of the cases where lawyers have been in trouble occur when an opposing party calls and initiates a call with a lawyer, perhaps on the telephone today, perhaps on Zoom, and the lawyer takes the bait. The lawyer starts speaking about the merits of the matter. The lawyer cannot do that without the permission of the other lawyer. And obviously, if the lawyer does do it, it's obvious to the other side it's happened. This is a slam dunk for many disciplinary authorities.
0: Well, if my listeners want to pick up Fair Fight Legal Ethics for Litigators and learn about some more of these uh, slam dunk scenarios that they need to be watching out for, how can they do that? Where should they go? They should go to the ABA store. They can pick it up there.
2: We hope our distribution is great. We hope that we didn't just do this for purposes of entertaining ourselves, although you can tell that we certainly enjoyed the, the process. But I might add or drive a footnote and say, this book was seven or eight years in progress. In the seven or eight years, we did three other books. Mm-hmm. Always this one was this orphan. So I'm so pleased that we finally got it out and we hope it will find an audience, and then we hope, of course, that somebody buys the uh, movie rights.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then I actually have been told by ABA Publishing uh, and the section of litigation that there will be a uh, discount code that we can give out. Go to abajournal.com books and find this episode. The code for that will be in the article that accompanies it. And Susan, Larry, I just want to thank you again for joining us. And listeners, if you enjoyed our discussion about Fair Fight Legal Ethics for Litigants, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.